This podcast is brought to you by UK Coaching, here for the coach. Visit ukcoaching.org to grow your coaching skills and be part of the community. Hello and welcome to another UK Coaching Skill Acquisition Podcast. This podcast is part of a series exploring an ecological approach to understanding theories of learning and coaching. I'm delighted to be joined by another fabulous guest. So could you please introduce yourself to us and tell us a little bit more about your coaching background? And uh, well, I'm going to let Tyler introduce himself, actually. So we're we're recording this uh, in the evening for a very good reason, because Tyler is uh, not in the UK. So could you give us a quick introduction, Tyler? Well, I certainly will. And first off, thank you very much for having me on. I'm delighted to, to be on the call here. I'm actually in the Twin Cities of Minneapolis, St. Paul area in Minnesota. So up pretty close to Chicago, for those of you familiar with some of the major cities in the United States. And so, yes, I'm 1.30 in the afternoon here. So it works out quite nicely. Um, yeah, so I've been in the industry for uh, just under 15 years. And I've, I've kind of gone back and forth in a lot of different places. I've worked in sport um, as the position coach for American football teams. I've worked uh, a majority of my career in the strength and conditioning, kind of old school, what you would view as a strength and conditioning coach, um, that space. And then in the past, probably five to seven years in some capacity, in the latter stages, in a much larger capacity as a skill adaptation coach or skill attunement coach, for those of you that are familiar with the language as far as how we view ourselves, but I still work in both spaces, both the, uh, the strength world and what it can do as far as the increasing upon the effectivities or capacities of an individual, as well as the on-field sport development where the information is more relevant to that particular performer to guide their movements. And so uh, a, a lot of different spaces, but I'm still on the learning journey myself. Brilliant, as, as are we all. And that's what's exciting about it. <laughs> so, um, so that's great. So just to recap there, you, you work and you use your, your, um, your understanding and curiosity about skill acquisition and skill development um, in both the uh, on-field sports coaching, but also the strength and conditioning to support that. So the capacity building of your athletes outside. Is, is still part of the same you still use the same sort of basic principles bingo, bingo. lovely okay so um I, I i have asked everybody if they've got one little fun fact just kind of just to make us feel a little bit more human for the listeners <laughs> yeah no let's let's see uh, no that's fantastic i i guess i have a couple of them but the, the most unique one would probably be i my master's is in kinesiology and i'll be pursuing my uh my doctorate here shortly I'm in motor learning skill acquisition. And so my bachelor's is actually in criminal justice. So I was, I was a criminal justice major, wanted to be a law enforcement officer back in the day and uh, was offered a job in the, in the Tulsa area in Oklahoma, another state in the southern part of the United States. And um, after I pursued uh, playing American football and getting close to playing at the professional level, not quite there. Uh, I decided that I wasn't, wasn't really wanting to go down that route. So I, I fortunately had taken a bunch of of elective classes in nutrition, and I just had to take uh, anatomy and physiology uh, as a prerequisite to get into graduate school on my GRE and whatnot. And so, yeah, my, my unique fun fact is I have a bachelor's degree in criminal justice. So very different. Brilliant. Everybody actually is, is showing a little bit of that, you know, being a generalist in whatever way it is. Right. Academic or sporting, <laughs> which I like. Perfect. Hey, perfect. <laughs> okay. So we're talking today a little bit about... Um, a more ecological dynamics approach or constraints that approach to skill development. And for some people who are listening, that is going to sound like it's double Dutch. 
And uh, so I think a nice, what I'm trying to do is just to uh, basically ask, you know, how you got, how you ended up in that space? How did you hear of it? And why did you have a go? <laughs> you know, I think that's one of the questions that's asked to us all quite often, really and truly, is how, how did we get there, you know, from maybe where we began? And I, for me, I, I was very much of a technical model. There's a one size fits all. And I didn't even really know it at the time, but I just assumed that I was the the bearer of all knowledge. And as, as long as I would accumulate that knowledge as a coach, I then could teach it out. And so for me, I, I did that for quite some time, like I said, just, you know, under 15 years. And so I'd say for a good seven or eight years, that was how I approached coaching in, in everything that I did as far as uh, linear mechanics and sprinting. And I, I never considered what sport they might be playing um, or it was something in the weight room that was contributing. It was, you know, we were coaching technique in the weight room that might be for a, Olympic lifting, an entirely different sport, but yet it was supposed to contribute to the on-field development for football, baseball, soccer, basketball, whatever it may be. And, and yes, it certainly can in some aspects. But uh, for me, it really started where I started to watch the players a little closer. Now, I wasn't really watching necessarily what they were interacting with at the time, but I started watching them in, in game. And this is at a Division I level, American football in college, which is a, a pretty high-level football uh, here in the States. And they, they weren't behaving the way in which we were coaching them to behave in the speed and agility sessions. And we called it agility. It was change of direction, speed, uh, you know, had, had uh, benefit to it, but completely different than what they were going to interact with. And so that was really where it initially started. And then um, there's a book called Super Training by uh, Mel Siff and Dr. Yuri Berkashansky, and uh, neither are with us any longer. But uh, the, the latest edition in 2009, and I remember reading this at the time, this was just after the latest edition was released, that sport is a problem-solving activity in which movements are used to produce the necessary solutions. And I remember reading that, and I thought to myself, that's that's kind of interesting to have in a strength and conditioning Bible. You know, that's kind of what we termed it in, in uh, this particular area. It was like the book. You had to have it. And I remember reading that. I thought, that's, that's interesting. They would, they would have the word problem-solving you know, and sport in the same sentence. And I kind of skipped over it. But for me, it was kind of a slow, uh, a slow process in the fact that I didn't have an understanding of any of the underlying principles. Um, I didn't understand there was a difference or maybe even different theories of motor learning, even though I'd gone through, um, you know, classes and that. And it, in my opinion, is because the, the professor at that time had his particular theory that he abided by. And that was what he taught us as students. So this was back in probably 2010 and 11. And so ever since then, it's been a, um, a it was initially a relatively slow progression. And then about four and a half years ago, I completely flipped and it's been a hundred percent ecological approach for quite some time now. And I, I now look at it, I'm like, how could I have ever assumed that I had the answer to every, every movement? So anyways, that's the, that's the short answer. <laughs> Brilliant, brilliant. And there's and, and there, I I love there's loads of little bits in that. So most people I talk to, they seem to have either either there was a problem they couldn't solve or they sort of noticed stuff like you, I love that you say that you're watching them on the field and it just shows how much attention you pay to that information, which is amazing. And obviously you're a really high level coach. So and then going, oh that's not that doesn't actually match what they're doing in the training session. That's interesting. I, I really, yeah, I really like that. And so people seem to get hooked in and then they get deeper and deeper into it. And, and, you, and what's nice is most people, and I hope people who, who are listening to this will find this, 
most people, the deeper they get into it, the more excited they get about it. So it kind oh, of seems a bit, a bit like scary to start with, but then it gets a little bit addictive. <laughs> well, it's addictive in the fact that, uh, you know, and to use some of the, the language that I now understand more so is like the, the actions or the action fidelity, which is, uh, you know, a culmination of the actual entire human movement system, not just the biomechanical motor actions, but the perceptual cognitive, uh, let's call it tendencies or, or intrinsic dynamics were, were something that for me, I was, I was just looking at that individual at the time. But then now when I look at the information space, I, I truly view myself as someone that is designing problems. And those problems need to have a high level of, of information that's relative to them. And obviously that's something that, you know, I'm still learning more so about what is specifying to that individual. And it's not going to be frame to frame. But with that being said, um, I, I look at it now and I think to myself, what we had as coaches, we were certainly helping the athletes. I know we were. But whenever I looked at what they were doing on field and the behaviors weren't what we were doing, that's where I started to question myself. And I realized that what's around them, I didn't realize, I didn't really think about it at the time as information that they were connecting to to guide their movement. But what was in, what was in the space? And it was often ladders. It was, it was cones. And we were working on their, their feet and their footwork. So anyways, to that addictive uh, comment there, yes, you can certainly get there because you start to realize uh, the, the just abundance of information that is out there for a human to connect to at any moment in time. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. And, and yeah, and on the pitch, it's not the ladders and cones, is it? It's something else. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, which brings me on nicely actually to the next question, which is what, what does an ecological approach look like in your practice? Um, you know, what, what did you change? And I don't mind whether you go down an S&C route or a bit of a coaching or whatever kind of you think would be a really good example. Right. Well, gosh, we could, we could be on a call for uh, for every coach that you that you talk to, but for for me, it's both sport and it's strength and conditioning. So we, I'm happy to attack either. But probably there's fewer. My guess would be there are fewer people that you're having on a call that are uh, from the traditional S and C route. And so I would say that um, you know, I'll very briefly touch on the sport piece. The sport piece I work predominantly with American football. And so with American football, I look at what can I, what constraints can I design in. Um, or even affordances or invitations to that setting can I design in based off of film evaluation, in-person evaluation, conversations with the athletes, maybe even the sport coaches, what are they connecting to that they, we need to start to um, harness and maybe exploit or allow for them to exploit in their sport? And then what are they maybe not connecting to that could be out there that they could explore? And, um, you know, thinking about you know, being inquisitive about what they could do first uh, was, was a good starting point. And so that exists in sport in the fact that I may design an activity where there are two or three bodies in a space. And if I have identified with film analysis um, as the sport coach that uh, the individual is utilizing a more, maybe more physical solution in American football, meaning that they're seeking contact often. Um, and they're not using potentially the space around them or even connecting to the, to the information in the space around them, I will design in activities that may include that separation between the defenders with the offensive uh, ball carrier to where they start to seek and explore that space, that rich landscape of space. So that might be one example. And I won't go too deep in that because I know that's something you may get often. Yeah. Can I, can I just, um, just reflect back that to you? Sure. A couple of things in there that I heard that, again, um, are really interesting. So one of them, and again, it's a bit of a, it's an, an, a recurring theme, is 
you know, there, there is still that necessity to have those conversations and do the analysis and watch the video and and have those reflective conversations with the athletes to see what it is they are aware of, what are they connecting to, what what are they paying attention to, what opportunities are they seeing. Um, yeah, no, that's... A Sorry, a lot of people say, oh, well, if you're using an ecological approach, then you don't, you don't talk. <laughs> you don't tell them anything. <laughs> no, you bring up a really good point. Um, there, there are a number of things that I can pull from that. The first would be that nowhere in an ecological approach says that explicit guidance can't exist there. I mean, that's where education of attention, you know, <laughs> potentially where to look, not necessarily what to see or intention, like what they potentially could aim to interact with. But the, to me, the most important part of that is, is as a coach, uh, we coexist in the environment with that athlete. So it's a co-adaptive relationship where there's learning that's occurring, you know, you know, on both sides. And so for me, if I didn't talk to them, I might not have any idea what they are connecting to or what they're not connecting to. And then they oftentimes, especially as the relationship you know, grows, that they are inquisitive and ask you questions and gives you insight of what they are perceiving and so that part's crucial for me and that I do in, in the sport itself, because I do work with, like I said, American football and the actual sport itself. So the information is, has, you know, high relevancy and is specifying for them. But I also exist, you know, my, my background, like I mentioned earlier, is in traditional strength and conditioning. So, you know, really and truly us at Emergence, what we've done, and this has been kind of a collective approach because myself and a, and a handful of other individuals, Sean Mishka, Michael Zwiefel, uh, Rich White, specifically those guys. And then there's a Jared Sigmund and, and Garrett Boyum are also involved. But the, the four of us really, um, you know, exploring what can occur in the weight room and uh, the rep without rep approach that can live there and the, uh, the problem solving that can still exist there. And you have, you have pieces of equipment. I, um, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. I'm thinking it's a really good opportunity just to get you to explain what you mean by rep without rep. So I know what you mean, but I'm thinking some of the some of the listeners may have no idea what you mean by that. So I, I, it would be great just to do a quick explanation because it's so key to all of it, isn't it? It is, and I could give you the the Bernstein mouthful, which is essentially where it started, or a really short and sweet. And how I try to explain it to to everybody is is it, it is problem solving. Rep without rep, meaning we're not trying to re perform repetition by rote. We're not doing the same exact movement. So in a weight room, for example. It, we, if we're doing a back squat, it may not be my feet are positioned the same way. I have the barbell weighted the exact same way and I'm moving with the same tempo or even with the same intent. Um, and those are just a couple of examples. So it could be, speaking of educating the intention um, of the athlete, you know, we're mentioning they can perform, they're going to be performing five repetitions and we want them to vary the tempo on a few of those repetitions. We want them to vary the tempo. And so we're not telling them how to do it. We're not telling them what repetition. We're not telling them the speed necessarily, but just kind of bringing their attention to that area and they're, you know, guiding their intentions. So they then are changing the tempo to where it's maybe three seconds on the way down. And so point being, as far as rep without rep, we want them to solve problems in a number of different ways. We want them to be actively engaged with the problem versus it being something where it's just redundant and it's just habitual and they are not um, open to the world around them. Yeah, so um, again, I'm just going to try and paraphrase that, uh, that you're asking them to solve uh, like an outcome problem and, and using different solutions each time, hopefully. So that, the process is so different, sure. Variations in solution rather than repeating a solution all the time and hoping that that actually solves the problem. <laughs> 
precisely. You know, you're, it's the process of solving it. And so you want the outcome to be, you know, similar or the same, but the way in which you're attacking that problem is going to be slightly different each time. And, you know, obviously, whenever you have the individual, you have the task that's there, maybe it's the back squat in the situation or a kettlebell swing or whatever it may be. And then you have the environment which they're performing it in. It's going to change because of the, the you know, the marrying of all those three. So exactly. Yeah, this is, we're not going to, we, we could get a whole podcast on this, but I'm, I'm just going to bring it up so we can touch it and maybe come back. Because a lot of people will be listening to that and, and thinking, oh my, but it has to be biomechanically perfect because I've been told if I don't do it exactly like this then I'm going to cause damage and but actually what we're saying is no our body needs to have loads of variability of movement and go to all the different places that it might end up on the pitch (laughs) and that not to be a new place for your physical system because you've been too busy practicing just in this really single movement um you know space uh, so it, would, would that be right? So I think that that might be another podcast, but I know a lot of people will be thinking, whoa, you've just blown my mind. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's a really good point. I'm happy you brought it up. I was going to try to address it a little bit later if we, okay. if we got to that point. But at the same time, it's a perfect opportunity to bring it up now. Uh, with this, by no means are we saying as a coach, we're just standing back and kind of letting them figure it out. I mean, there is that kind of self-actualization, that uh, that ownership of movement, that autonomy that exists there. And that part we do want. And the autonomy could be maybe the repetitions they're performing. So we give them a range of four to eight. You know, it's within that range that we're kind of as a coach looking for. Uh, but yet we're allowing them to have ownership to increase motivation levels and whatnot. However, if they're under a bar and they've got a massively rounded spine and they're creating kyphosis or curvature in their upper spine that could potentially lead to injury, as coaches, we are going to step in there. Um, however, if they are in, uh, you know, looking at these key performance indicators, you know, they're, they're in a squat specifically, their hips being backwards, you know, behind them a little bit, their trunk being relatively straight. Now that obviously is going to have meaning differently for everyone, but relatively straight. And then allowing for differences as far as how their feet are placed, you know, as far as the tempo in which they're moving. That's where we want them to have that ownership. And, you know, there, there are a number of reasons why, but for us specifically at Emergence, we, we look for, and I've used the term uh, resiliency before, we want that resilient system. And, and I do still feel that way. Uh, but at the same time, we're, we're also, and this is an area we're actually exploring, is the anti-fragility. And uh, that piece to where you have a system that's not trying to return to its same state, but yet the system that's trying to adapt in a system that's trying to uh, continue to move forward. And so that part is, is absolutely crucial. And, and Rob Gray actually just did a podcast with uh, um, about that exact topic. So that's a very deep dive, but we're looking for that as a coach. We're wanting to allow for that athlete to be there. And yes, for the listeners out there, it is going to vary quite a bit depending on the level of learner you're working with depending on where they are. We're still very non-linear with the way that we approach it. We don't have a progression from a kettlebell goblet squat to a barbell front squat to a barbell back squat. It's going to differ on every individual. Um, So that's where that individual non-linear pedagogy is going to exist. However, as coaches, last thing, we are are paying attention to how how in which they're moving. And if they start to violate areas that we have seen a number of times over and over that could potentially lead to injury, we are going to step in. And the feedback has been tremendous, which I could cover, but uh, as far as the athletes themselves. Well, I, I can do a little plug anyway, because I know you sent some stuff over to my son for his, some of his climbing injury yeah. stuff. And, and he's out climbing again. So I'm like, don't break it. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah. Oscar, yeah, that's wonderful. That's that's hot. Yeah, high praise from him. He's yeah. He's he's. I was like, you climbing already? <laughs> but that's where you know. I, I actually forgot about that. I'm glad you brought it up. That's where that uh, ownership comes into play, and that's also where that asking questions comes into play, and then having feedback from the athletes. So for your son specifically, I mean, he lives Australia, correct? He's yeah, Australia. Both, yeah. Depending, but he's here at the moment. <laughs> Both of them. Okay, he's all over. Yeah. So with that, I mean, I'm obviously in the Twin Cities, so it's hard for me to go, oh, well, this is the issue. This is how you need to fix it. It's more of a, you know, you might, if it becomes something that's a problem, it could go, it's something you can go and check out. But from what you're uh, telling me and what I'm gathering, it, it could be a number of things. Why don't you try a couple of things here first? Let me know how it feels. Let me know how you feel. And then we can kind of go from there. So there's that communication that exists. And, and it's, it is problem solving from a coach athlete perspective too. You know, it's for me, I, I don't have every answer and all answer because every human is different in the way in which they move. So it's based off of them still being in that state of problem solving and state of ownership and, and really and truly uh, we, we want, we want decisions to still exist there as well. Yeah. Brilliant. And I, I, again, I think that's, that's certainly something that, um, you know, a, a lot of people talk about is the, just the whole, um, you know, the whole space that's opened up by having that more co-adaptive and co-creating relationship and all the things that we learn as coaches and learn mm -hmm. as well. Um, so fabulous. I'm going to move on to the next question is, which is what have you, and you probably covered a lot of this actually, but if you were just to cover what the key benefits are of, of you sort of starting to get a little bit more into that space, thinking about skill adaptation um, and skill development in the way that you work. What have the key benefits been for you? If we're talking about the weight room specifically, I mean, there's a there's a quite a few on each side from the sport itself to the actual the actual weight room. And I can be brief and kind of touch on both, you know, from the from the field itself, it's the athlete telling me they just feel, they feel uh, the, the word I've been told. And it's partly because they hear me say connecting and attuned and, you know, being sensitive. I don't always use the word attunement, but occasionally slips out. Uh, but being sensitive is they say they feel, they feel like it's slower for them. The game feels slower. And so I, and I also had an athlete the other day, uh, given on the uh, opposite side of the spectrum. Um, he's a receiver in American football, and he's been away from me for quite some time. And he was at, he admitted that he had not been interacting with the sport in slices, um, such as he was with myself when he, he was in off season. And he told me the other day, and now granted, this is an athlete that's worked with me for a while, but he told me, I can tell I'm perceptually rusty. Wow. And I was like, wow, that's a really interesting way to, to define that. But essentially for me, the benefits are, they feel like the game's slower. They feel like that they have, um, you know, more, more control. And I've actually asked them what they mean by that. And, and then a handful of them have told me, I feel like I have more ownership in the way in which I move. So that could mean a bunch of things. And that's where it gets really interesting to find out what that means to an athlete. So those are some of the biggest benefits of, of it on the field. And to me, I hear problem solving. I hear the ability to be potentially dexterous. And so in the weight room, the number one thing we actually hear is this is more fun. Now for the listeners out there, fun is also involved in, in sports. And so, um, Fun is, a, is the number one thing they hear. Number two, it, uh, they are, it motivates them because they get a chance to choose. They get a chance to choose maybe what weight equipment they're using. They have overhead pressing or vertical pressing that is uh, in their session, but they can choose kettlebells, dumbbells, sandbells, barbell. They can choose. 
and then it feels better. I don't feel like I'm extremely sore all the time. However, I feel like I am able to move as well or better than I was before. So those are the biggest things we hear. There's a number of other things, but those are probably the ones we hear the most often specifically pertaining to the weight room. And, and for the listeners out there who, who may not know who I am uh, from anyone else, I, I am probably even less traditional than most coaches now, uh, or excuse me, in the middle of my career than I was uh, then, you know, in the first part of my career, for sure, but certainly other coaches, I wasn't a traditional powerlifting or Olympic lifting base. I've had moments where I've existed there, but I've always been into kettlebells, which have an extended center of mass. So inherently, they're going to cause the system to have to coordinate the available you know, degrees of freedom to not fall over. And so in that process, there's going to be coordination and balance. And yes, it's specific to the, to the actual bell itself. But uh, with that being said, you know, my main point to highlight is the fact that I've had that exist there for a while. And these are the things that I hear back from the athletes. Wow. That's brilliant. So even that shift from, you know, still being fairly, um, um, or, or less traditional to where you are now, you've still seen a huge change. Correct. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting and, and really resonates with some of the, certainly the stuff that I played around. As I get older, I keep thinking I've got to do more stuff. So I don't know. And that's another piece too, though. I, I, that's another piece too. I'm, I'm approaching 40 and, and I, I have gotten for the first time, <laughs> I've forgotten the first time in my life, you know, I, I'm a little bit bored with some of the traditional movements. And so for me, it's continuing to play and continuing to enjoy uh, that portion. And you've heard me present before, and that's a, that's a large part for me is still playing even at a, at an older age. So even if it is your athlete, that's 27, you know, or, or 16 or, allowing them to enjoy it and having joy exist there as well that piece is crucial yeah definitely right um any challenges <laughs> well the one that comes to mind specifically <laughs> i'll give you one on each, on each side both sport and that one's easier and then in the weight room the sport is being able to quantitatively and objectively and there are ways to measure it but 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 not not in its totality which is where the challenge point is uh, being able to measure the scale adaptation process. So now a lot of where it exists is essentially by analysis from myself as a coach, the athlete, the sport coach, and seeing that it is existing because they're, they're solving more of the problems they encounter on the field and then trying to add to that the measurable bits, such as in American football, yards after the catch or sacks. or And obviously there's a lot of things that are going to influence that, but that's the challenge part right now where we're slowly progressing that way. And I say we, I mean, in the entire industry, not any particular side of learning. Uh, we're, we're trying to get there. And that's, uh, that's where exists in sport. Yeah, I, I be re- just come in a little bit there, actually. Cause I, it's, I mean, e- even whatever, whatever lens you look at, actually, in practice, there's always been a bit of a challenge that people want to see something look good at the end of the session or in mm-hmm. a game early on, rather than realizing that, 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 as we become more skillful, actually, you see it later. So what we look at at the end of the session, whether you, whatever, whatever sort of lens, theoretical lens you look at, there's a recognition that's not actually learning. Learning is, can they do it next week, next month? Brilliant. So there's yeah, a that's bit a, of an overall challenge, isn't it, there, still? It, it is, because, you know, to your point, uh, you know, even if you are, even if you have a great relationship with a lot of the head coaches here, and I'll talk specifically um, you know, in regards to the NCAA football or, or collegiate football, the head coaches, oftentimes they want to see that performance at the end of the session 
or even at the end of the week? Did, did they perform better in the fact that were they able to move more weight in their deadlift and their bench press? And, you know, I would imagine all the listeners out there, regardless of where you, where you sit, as far as your view on learning, uh, it's, it's going to clearly to a certain extent benefit their ability as a, as a system to produce force. But then how do I, how am I connecting to information in my sport? In addition to those, those intrinsic dynamics or tendencies, dispositional tendencies that allow me to move and move well. And so anyway, that's, I could go off on a, on a large tangent in that direction, but we'll just touch on it and move yeah. on the essence bit. <laughs> In the SNC bit, the hardest part um, is really not that. I shouldn't say it's hard. It's more, it's more exciting than it is anything else. In the fact that, to my knowledge, there's there's zero or if, if any, I, I'm just not aware of it. Research that has been done on any any population size using a rep without rep approach. And so, with that, I mean, I'll I'll be the first to admit that uh, my my business partner, one of my business partners, Sean Mishka was the first person that ever said, no, I'm taking a rep without rep approach in the weight room. And I was like, what do you, what do you mean by that? And he, he, he had me out to a session and I watched it and I thought, huh, well, I'm, I'm doing some of that already. I'd never viewed it that way though. And so that's where my wheels started turning. And I started thinking to myself, well, how can I view problem solving to occur in the sport? And then I don't, then I, I approach it entirely differently in the weight room. Or maybe I have bits that are in there, but I don't really realize they exist. So one of the things that, that we're trying to do um, at Emergence, and we have a course, our, our, our weight room course that's out, that's trying to highlight this, is specifically educating coaches. Let's say I have a relationship with sport coaches, is that I'm, I'm letting them know, like, we're still trying to attack this in the weight room in the same way uh, that you are on the field. Because I truly feel like if I'm pulling an athlete in one direction and it's opposite from where their coach is and they're using an the ecological approach, it's not very beneficial to that athlete. Yeah, that's, that, that's really interesting. And, and so the no research bit is the challenging part. <laughs> yeah. As, well, as you know, I did message you for my last PhD assignment and say, have you, do you know where I can find any? Because I couldn't find any either. Um, well, yeah, if anyone out there wants to do some research... <laughs> Well, I can tell you that it is an area of interest of mine, obviously. It's, it's probably, I would say, second or third on the list of which um, I want to attack first. But it is something I'm very interested in and, and hope to contribute to that part of the field in the coming years. Yeah, so watch this space. Yeah, definitely an exciting place to, to, to go. Right, on to our last question then, Tyler. Um, what would your top tips be for a coach who's listening to this and thinking, um, all right, I, I, I'd like to dip my toe into using more ecological approach in my coaching and um but i'm not quite sure you know where, where to start so have you got some 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 top tips i i only do i guess because that's a question probably second to how did i get to where i am or, or start to view learning in the way i do that i get the most often and i'll admit that i used to be a little bit more aggressive i guess with ah you got to do this first you need to do this first and and really i think the a couple of the biggest things are and I wrote a blog actually just recently about this starting small, just maybe if I have, I have certain ideas I just can't let go of or certain principles as a coach that I've used for so long and I have seen some success. Clearly there's something that's existing there that works. Uh, so don't abandon maybe all of it, but what can I change? Maybe it is giving less feedback after a rep. Maybe I, maybe I take a rep or two off, not, not watching them and, and analyzing the way in which they're engaging in, in their sport or the weight room, but maybe I let them kind of have that time. 
and then I step in later on. So that might be one way. Or maybe it is I'm going to think about how could I change the environment in which they exist in if I'm a you know a coach that's out on the pitch. You know, could I could I have them practice in a setting where it's going to have a moisture surface that they're interacting with because that's going to change the way they they apply force into the ground and when they're connecting to moving bodies and whatnot. So maybe changing one thing, starting small, change one thing um, when, whenever you're manipulating those constraints. That would be the number one suggestion uh, that I would give. And probably number two and close to it is involve the athlete. If anything else, involve the athlete in the process and just see what it does for your coaching. Take, take what they say uh, with, with high consideration, and, and you can't take everything, but it's, it's one of those things where I truly feel that if we listen to what the athletes have to say, because they, in fact, do perceive, in my view, invitations or, or affordances based on their action capabilities, if I do listen to what they have to say, I'm going to be better off as a coach. Brilliant. Yeah, I really, I really like that. And, and the... Um... Yeah, the idea of just, you know, don't, you, you don't want to just sort of lose all the structure that you've got in one go. So just, mm -hmm. just like play with little bits where it feels safe and start, start creating that dialogue with your athletes. So you're, um, that you're learning more about what, what it feels like from their experience. What, what that's they yeah, that safe part's a crucial piece because I'll admit uh, for the listeners out there that are, you know, maybe a little bit more apprehensive and whether it's in the SNC, a bit or in sport, I was that way. I was like, well, gosh, you know, I've, I've learned all this information. I, I have to teach it to them. And I haven't abandoned everything. There's still a lot of it that exists there. There, there is that common ground, but I really feel that if we just maybe take those two and just try them and see what happens. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you so much. That is oh, pleasure is mine. Thank you very much. That has been absolutely brilliant and so much in there, which is fascinating and lovely to, to explore it from a slightly different perspective. Uh, so thank you very much, Tyler. Brilliant. And I'm sure there will be a part two, actually. I've just, I, I'm like noting the other conversations that would be great to have. <laughs> well, thank you so much. The pleasure is all mine. And I, I, I can't thank you enough. Join us at ukcoaching.org. Whatever you're doing to help people be active and improve, we can help you deliver great coaching experiences at a time to suit you.